Welcome to episode 22 of the Pogue McGoal podcast. co-editor of Pogue Goal, and you're listening to the 22nd instalment of the podcast co-commentator of Ireland's only football magazine. Our series looks at football culture from around the world and right now we're getting close to finalising a brand new issue 8 of the magazine. From what I've seen of the spread so far you're in for a real treat as the imagery is already incredible. Keep an eye on our social media channels for more details and issue 7 is still available to order online at pogmagoal.com. On today's episode, we're joined by Joey Miller, a former journalist now based in London via Dublin and Norwich, who for a time had a specialism which also formed the basis of his article from Issue 6 on North Korea, which we'll be delving into a little bit later. But first, I'm delighted to be joined again by my co-host Taylor Geel, communications manager based in London, and hopefully a soon-to-be recruit to my 7 aside team. We were thumped 9-0 this week. Uh, it was a shambolic defensive performance. So, welcome back, Taylor. How have you been? All right, mate. Yeah, how are you? You were in goal, were you, for those nine goals? Yeah, but what's that meant to mean? <laughs> <laughs> it was a de- it was an overall defensive shambles. We'll, we'll skip on that. Taylor, for the forthcoming issue eight currently in production, I open one article with the line that football often offers more drama than can ever be dreamt up in Hollywood. But at the time of recording, Hollywood did throw up drama in the form of Will Smith's now infamous slap on Chris Rock. I say slap because I think in football parlance, it would be best described as handbag stuff. So my question to you in a tenuous attempt to jump on the bandwagon is do you have a favourite on-field football scrap? Uh, well, I don't, I don't really, I don't, wouldn't consider this my favourite. But the the one that sticks in my mind is... Ben Thatcher's tackle on Pedro Mendes. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but Pedro Mendes was playing for Portsmouth and Ben Thatcher was playing for Leicester, I want to say, when we had a, a brief stint in the Premier League. And he sprints halfway across the pitch to make this tackle, but just like leads with his elbow and clatters him into the into the hoardings. And uh, it's not really a fight, but it's like, it's a proper slap. I think Pedro Mendes was in a lot of trouble. Okay. <laughs> but that that is the one that sticks in my mind when you suggested this question. So yeah, I'm going to go with that, although it's slightly darker than you probably wanted. <laughs> well, one uh, expert in the dark arts was Roy Keane, and it's 20 years this year from the infamous Saipan incident. I mean, every time people kind of roll their eyes when you bring this up, but my on-field scrap actually came after that. So he brought out a book shortly after where he kind of laid bare all his grievances and had a go at players and then I think Man United played Sunderland quite shortly after and Jason McAteer was one of the people kind of criticizing the book now Jason McAteer is he's an Irish hero for scoring the goal against Holland when we beat them 1-0 but he's also he can be a bit of an idiot but anyway on at this point the whole pre-match was all about Saipan and Keane was coming up against these guys and there's an incident in it where McAteer kind of lays an elbow into Keane and it all it all blows up and they're going at each other's throats and everyone's uh, everyone's trying to hold him back. But McAteer made a little pen writing gesture and he's like, put it in your book. And I think that's he went up in my estimation for that. So, yeah, that's an on-field scrap I'll pick. And so today's guest is Joey Miller author of the Issue 6 article, Football in the Shadows, how North Korea military side April 25's continental exploits gave the world a rare glimpse at football in the secretive nation. Welcome to the Pogma Gold podcast, Joey. Thanks, James. Hey, Taylor. Hello. I won't ask you what side of the keen divide you were on, but do you have a favourite 
Well, can we say, favourite? Do you have a memorable scrap that comes to mind? <laughs> yeah, I. Well, my favourites are always the ones where where teammates fight uh, fight each other. Uh, there's always yeah. so much bubbling under there. So obviously, the the Kieran Dyer and uh, and Bowyer one is the most famous one. But do you remember the one? Uh, it wasn't even in a game. This is the weird thing. It was in, it was in a training game. Do you remember when that photo got leaked from the West Ham camp in the early two thousands? John Hart. It was just a photo showing John John Hartson kicking uh, Berkovic straight in the face. I don't know if you guys remember that. You've got to look it up. It's uh, the most violent picture I've ever seen from a, from a <laughs> training game. Uh, and a few days later, they had a big uh, PR photo showing them both uh, arms around each other, smiling and laughing. So, uh, yeah, that's my favourite. It's definitely worth looking up. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Craig Bellamy with West Ham, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He, was, he was involved in a few as well. But I do, I remember that, um, I remember that Ben Thatcher one as well. It was pretty, that was pretty, pretty horrific. Yeah, yeah, not technically a fight, I guess, but yeah. Bit, wow. bit one-sided. Yeah. Joey, with all our guests on the podcast, we asked them how they first got interested in football. Right, yeah. I mean, it's 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 funny you mentioned uh, Roy Keane and Saipan, I guess, because I was, I was 11 years old in the, when 2002 came around. And I was a bit of a slow, slow start at football. I wasn't that bothered about it when I was, you know, seven or eight or nine. Got started getting into it when I was 10 and then yeah 2000 world uh, 2002 world cup started and I just just became obsessed it, it just took over my life um and yeah it was it was a it was a crazy crazy summer to be an 11 year old kid you know especially because with the time difference for that tournament it was in uh Japan and Korea obviously there was lots of uh strange kickoff times so I the, you know the first game I went for a sleepover at my friend Killian shout out to Killian uh, you know, we got up really early for the Cameroon game. The second game against Germany, we were, um, it was in school time. So we were, you know, oh God, there's nothing more exciting than 100 school kids being piled yeah. into, a, you know, the biggest classroom you can find in that school and everyone going, going wild watching it. Um, so yeah, 2002 was when I really got into it. And from there, it was just, um, uh, just grew and grew. And my dad was big in football. My uncles were as well. My friends all were. And it just, yeah, then it became a bit more of a boring uh uh, standard boy boy discovering football story and that world cup as i said is two decades ago joey and we haven't been at one since <laughs> uh, I, yeah i was thinking i do remember uh my dad saying to me after the penalty shootout like don't worry you know we'll give it another few years we'll be back and yeah geez 20 years this year it's uh sad to think about yeah i'm a bit older than you so i was a drinking age of that World Cup and it is one of the greatest summers of my life. Um, we had a sleepover, probably a different kind of sleepover to you had for the Cameroon game and there's great, some great stories. My brother, Key actually, the, the co-editor of Poem and Gold, was doing his state exams in Ireland for the Germany game. And there's loads of stories, Taylor, of like, uh, what would you call them? The supervisors coming in saying, like shouting to this crowd of 100 students trying to do their exams. Germany are 1-0 up and then Robbie Keane had scored. But I think he had left, I think it was a Spain game. He had left the study hall, the exam hall, and he was running down the town in Kilkenny. And he was going downhill in Kilkenny when Keane equalised with a penalty. And he said you could hear the roar go up above the entire city. And I mean, that that's probably the next best thing to uh, not being able to see the game is to witness the reaction but you've got a world cup coming this year taylor i was going to ask you both actually obviously with where it is and when it is there's no real buzz about it is there now just this week we're, we're kind of down to the last remaining places i don't know how you feel taylor as obviously england will have designs on going far in it yeah i mean i'm i think we've got a good squad at the moment and i'm excited to see them play but yeah you're definitely right there feels like there's far less of a buzz about this not just because you know it cuts the domestic season in half which i love watching and i'm not looking forward to the kind of discontinuity of that but also just because the whole thing is so mired in corruption and death and it's just it's so toxic and i care far less although i still do care and want england to win yeah and what would you think yourself joey it's I mean, it's quite tarnished before a ball's been kicked, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really struggling to get up for it. And I think I'm just kind of, the closer we get to it and the more of the, uh, the sort of qualification drama over the last, the last week or so, which, which was great, you know, the, especially the, the African games, the more, the more that we get to it and uh, yeah, I just, I'm just annoyed that I'm not going to get into it in the normal way that I can and that 
when it comes around to it, there's the background of it being in Qatar and, and uh, everything that happened with the stadiums being built and uh, the human rights scandals and, and all that sort of thing. And then from the sort of, um, not, not quite as serious as that, but the fact that it's being held in winter and it's going to be dark out and it's not going to be the sort of normal World Cup or, uh, you know, summer tournament buzz you get out of, um, yeah, out of, out of a, a summer tournament. It's just, yeah, it's really annoying because I love international football. It's my, it's sort of my, uh, the main thing I like about it. And you get the rhythms of it every two years, something to look forward to. And it's just, yeah, this one's a bit tarnished. And to be honest, I don't know if I'll really watch it as much as usual, if at all. You know, I'd love to say I'm going to gonna boycott it, but I might not be that that strong when it comes comes down to uh, December. But yeah, I can't I can't see it being the the type of tournament we all get into in the normal way. No, and you described 2002 being your first World Cup. I mean, there's no magic around this one, is there? It just, certainly not at the moment, and I can't see it emerging between now and Christmas. Christmas World Cup even sounds weird to say. And there's, an, there's enough stuff going on at Christmas. You've got, you've got I mean, we, we all live, well, uh, yourself and myself, we live away from family, I guess. So at Christmas, you're going home, you've got, you got to see people you haven't seen in a while, you've got to see the family. I don't, I don't really have time for a World Cup at the same time. Um, Might be a good out. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> um, but also, I'm I'm all for getting getting World Cups in in different places and stuff. But it's this isn't this isn't the spread the game, is it? It's not to spread the game to the to the people of Qatar. It's no. uh, there's money behind it, and it's um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a real shame, really. Yeah, and Taylor, I guess you'd have just no desire to go to that World Cup. No chance. Yeah. No chance. Yeah, I mean, I'd even if somebody offered me free tickets, I wouldn't go. I'd much rather yeah. watch it in a pub in England. Yeah, and Joey, you're from Dublin originally, and it was university that took you to England. Have you experienced football in the UK? Yeah, so and I moved over here when I was eighteen uh, to college in in uh, Norwich uh, to the University of East Anglia. Um, and in my first year, I got a job actually at Norwich uh, within the stadium. So I was working in the the ticket office for the away oh, fans. Nice. Yeah. So every every fortnight or so, I'd get. I mean, it was it was proper. It was literally cash in hand actually. But it, you know, every every fortnight there'd be a home game, and I'd um, rock up the car road and be placed in a little window next to um, a lovely old man. It was basically just me and him for the entire away end, um, <laughs> and whichever whichever. I mean, it didn't matter. It didn't matter which team was playing. Norwich, Norwich is out of the way. It's hard to get to. There's only recently been a motorway sort of put all the way there. Uh, so whichever whichever group of fans were traveling had been traveling for a while on a coach with a load of booze. So uh, they normally arrived in pretty good uh, good humor. And it was my job and uh, the man next to me's job to get them into the stadium and get the the right amount of money out of them. So through that, I became a, a, a big Norwich fan. Um, worked there for a couple of seasons um, and I lived in Norwich all told about four or five years um, and this was during the period where they went from League One up to the Premiership or the Premier League in uh, consecutive years Brilliant. a couple of years there down up down up you know so they're they're a fun team to support even if there's a fair amount of relegations and uh, what was it the Ipswich what do they call it the old farm <laughs> the old farm derby yeah I, unfortunately I was never there for a uh, for a derby game just yeah I was in the city for one of them and it was pretty um pretty exciting but I've not been in the ground for one yet um but yeah that's a pretty toxic rivalry you know uh for for two small small places out in East Anglia they they uh yeah they straight up don't like each other yeah and two clubs with like a fair amount of history on their own you know um Ipswich I think were probably I don't know the Premier League but they're certainly in the top flight when I started to watch English football so yeah two clubs from small areas with, with rich histories yeah I mean Ipswich massively um I mean, overachieved sounds negative, didn't it? But Ipswich did a lot back in the day. They had Bobby Robson as manager, and they um, that's sort of their uh, their claim to fame is that they've actually they've won a fair amount. Whereas Norwich are probably seen as being the bigger the bigger team now. You know, they've spent a fair uh, a lot of years over the last last ten fifteen years in the Premier League. Whereas whereas um, Ipswich are down in League One now. They're they're really struggling, but they've got the stuff from the trophy cabinet. So um, it's hard to know. Yeah. yeah, and Taylor, I've extolled the virtues of the movie Escape to Victory to you enough time. Have you watched it yet? You still not watched it? You've seen that, Joey, surely. <laughs> I've seen it. I, lo- I love Escape to Victory. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah you need to watch it, Taylor. It's a, it's a I will. I'll get film. on it. It's on the list. But Ipswich Town kind of padded out the cast. So do you remember John Wark, Scotland International? Do you remember? It's just like, just players you wouldn't necessarily pick to be in a football movie now, but 
Anyway. It's Pele, Bobby Moore, and about eight Ipswich players. It's a really, a really strange cast. <laughs> yeah, but it's an amazing film. <laughs> and Joey, that took you to London, and you worked as a journalist. How did you end up specialising in North Korea? Where did that come from? So I worked for, um, up until around six months ago, I was working for a, uh, yeah, a tabloid over here in London. Um, and this, this, this particular tabloid, um, the readers were pretty obsessive about a, a, a fairly small number of topics, but there are sort of, you know, the royal family, uh, weather, Brexit. So you can kind of imagine which one of the two or three tabloids it might be. Uh, but the other thing that the readers really were interested in was just the idea of World War Three. They were just, you put World War Three in a headline and um, they'd read it. So, it, you know, there's, it, it didn't really matter what, te- what flavor of World War Three. It could be Russia, it could be China. If there's something scary happening in a place that these readers are a bit confused about, they'd read it. North Korea was really the big one. North Korea as a country, I think, it doesn't matter what side of the political divide you are over here. It's such an interesting place due to the, how secretive the country is and how, how little we really know about it. Um, so stories we wrote at North Korea just just flew. And, you know, I'll, you know this, is, this was lazy online tabloid journalism. It wasn't the heaviest... Uh, uh, the, you know, the most well-researched stuff. But in the margins of all these kind of crazy stories that were pumped out, uh, there was an opportunity for real real journalism. And I really, really enjoyed being able to sort of d- uh, dive down into North Korea and do a bit more um, proper stuff. So over the years I was there, I did a, a few interviews with North Korean defectors. Um, so people who lived in North Korea sort of uh, realized that what they were being sold wasn't true and escaped. Um, and that was really, really interesting and 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 uh, really humbling. And so I spoke to spoke to a couple of them. They were. Uh, and I know this is a football podcast, but if if you indulge no, me for absolutely, it, it it informs the background. Sure, exactly, and and yeah. So there was a couple of them I spoke to. Uh, the first uh, defector I spoke to was called Kim Jewel, um, and he was actually a soldier in North Korea. Um, and he was telling me about how he was. Uh, when he joined the army, it was a real big honor and his family were so proud and it was like the best day of his life. And he, he went off to the barracks and day one, he was just beaten by the other soldiers. He had his, his new uniform stolen. He was, his souvenirs from home were, were, uh, were stolen. And he just realized, okay, this isn't right, you know? And he said even worse than that was him and the other soldiers would often have to, in the middle of the night, go off into the areas where they were, they're located and basically loot loot the areas, loot the farm people who live there, take their food, take their clothes, because there's so little money for, for the soldiers and for the army, which is meant to be the, the top echelon of, of a North Korean society in a way, uh, that they had to steal from essentially rural, you know, rural peasants, more or less. Um, and he, he's, he stuck at it for a few years and he got promoted. And his, his, um, his new role was to track down soldiers who were running home, basically, who couldn't handle the army and bring them back. Uh, and, you know, he, he admitted this is a horrific job he had to do and he, he hated it. But as part of the job, he traveled around North Korea tracking down these soldiers. And he saw that no matter where he was, whether in the north or the south, the different towns and cities, it was just poverty everywhere. And that's what really opened his eyes to, to what was going on. Uh, and it's a similar enough story for um, jo- uh, the second uh, defector I spoke to is called uh, Jung Kwang Il. He was a trader, so he wasn't a soldier, but he was a trader and he was it sounded like he sort of operated on the margins of what was legal and what wasn't legal. But through that as well, he traveled around a lot and saw, saw a lot of the country and eventually got accused of being a spy because he was traveling and, you know, North Korea is not, um, in North Korea, they don't really allow you free movement even within the country. It's very, very restrictive. Um, and he spent three years in a gulag because they suspected him of being a spy and he was tortured and eventually was released. Uh, so Kim and Jung, they didn't know each other, but Kim and Jung both had their, you know, eyes opened to what was going on, uh, fled North Korea into China. Uh, Kim made his way to London. Uh, so I don't know if you know New Malden. Uh, so Kim now lives in New Malden, which is uh, sometimes called Little Korea. There's 20,000 uh, North and South Koreans who live there. Uh, and Jung actually uh, went to South Korea. But I found these, doing those interviews, really, really moving and really, really eye-opening. Um, but it also just made me really curious about the the other stuff. You know, what they what they were talking about was obviously really, really big picture stuff. Why the Kim dynasty is bad, what's what's going on, you know, the torture, the the prisons, the the standards of living. But I was always really curious as well about the, the sort of smaller stuff, like the day-to-day. 
like what what's it like being a you know saying I was when I was eleven. It's when the two thousand and two World Cup was starting. You know what's it like being a, an eleven year old in in North Korea? You know do they play do they play football in the streets? Do they do they have a you know and these these interviews were so heavy. It didn't feel appropriate for me to ask about football, but because I'm interested in football and because it's a you know it's a passion of mine. After speaking to them, I started doing a bit more research, digging into what was going on in the country in terms of uh, sport and and the football teams and the leagues and is there a league and how does it all work? Um, and after after a little bit of research, it, I came across a pretty interesting story, which which uh, formed the basis for what went in your magazine. Yeah, I mean it's the perfect background to your article, but. People may be familiar that North Korea were in the 1966 World Cup. And I think, I know Eusebio scored four against them, I think in the quarterfinals. So, I mean, they have some history and then drop off the map. But I think, as you say, like football is such a introduction to everyday life there. And, and even the background you've given of the soldier there just points to... That would have been considered a a good job, a prestigious job. Um, patriotism would have been literally drilled into them, and then this person had their eyes open by seeing what went on around them. Korea has been split since the end of the Second World War. North Korea has fired a short-range multiple rocket launcher. In 1966, these North Korean footballers travelled to England for the 8th World Cup. Portugal, third in the current world rankings against the lowest ranked side ever to attend a World Cup Finals. It's Ronaldo who's getting there first. It's six, it's seven. Ji Young Nam has just become a Korean hero. He has scored against Brazil. For the recent inter-Korea match that ended in a scoreless draw, North Korea kept their door shot to the public. It was like a war. I've never seen such aggression in football until now. Using football for international prestige, Russia and Qatar are already at it. And now North Korea. And so I think it's a fascinating intro to your article and I'll allow you just to give us the background to, to what the article is about. Sure. So it's about uh, a team called April 25 um, and they're they're normally called 425. It's a little bit, little bit easier to say. So we'll call them that. But um, they're they're essentially the, the biggest team in North Korea, the biggest domestic team in North Korea. You know, they've won, I think it's 19 league titles whenever there's a North Korean team representing North Korea in a sort of continental tournament. Uh, through the last 50, 60 years, it's, it's normally been them. They're sort of the, uh, the Juventus or the Bayern Munich of, of North Korea. Um, but as a little bit of extra background, North Korea's football, um, domestic football setup, until a few years ago, was, was, was just crazy. It, it made no sense. There was, a, there was a top, you know, there was a national championship, but it ran over about three weeks every September. Uh, and then there was a series of rotating like eight or nine other cups which are held throughout the year uh, and they'd sometimes be held over a single weekend so you'd have all these clubs going weeks or even months without playing a game and then being asked to play five or six games across a weekend and it, Jerry, it, it must yeah go ahead Taylor. Jerry, do, you, do you get any idea from kind of what you've looked into and the research you've done as to why that is the case because I was struck by that in your article that it is mm. so kind of um, schedule wise so chaotic why is that so I, I think um, it's due to symbolism in North Korea is huge and there's loads and loads of national holidays which uh, are in basically in tribute to one of the one of the three Kims or all three Kims or uh, momentous days in North Korea's history. So the founding day or the day that um, the, you know, the army was founded. There's so many big days um, which are normally marked by a lot of pageantry. So parades and marches and Often, uh, whenever there's a missile launch or anything like that, it'll, you know, and it makes the news over here. It's often to mark one of the big days in, in North Korea. So I think it probably makes sense that the, the football system works in the same way, or it did work until recently in the same way, where if there is a big holiday or someone's birthday, one of the Kims' birthdays, there would be a football tournament to mark it. And it makes sense from a, from a sort of propaganda point of view. I, I can see how it might make, might make sense from that angle, but from a from a football development point of view and if you imagine that the the poor players who go weeks without playing and then have to play six games in a weekend or or five games in a week or whatever it is 
you know, their their bodies must have been collapsing under the strain. And it, it's no wonder, really, that North Korea hasn't developed a huge amount of um, talented footballers with that sort of setup. But I think that's why I think that's why it's so irregular. Yeah, it makes um, like Pep Guardiola's protestations at fixture congestion <laughs> yeah. look ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. just sorry, one more before I let you continue. How how easy is it to kind of find out this stuff? It's really awkward. It's not easy at all. It's um, it's I mean, especially I think especially from the starting point of football is one of the most recorded, and there's so many people obsessed with it, and so many people across the world who update. You look at a Wikipedia page during a game, and it's almost been updated by the by the time the full time whistle goes, depending on what's going on. This isn't the case for North Korea. It was really really hard to um find out what's going on. It's it's almost it's almost um tricky even to find league tables and that sort of thing. There's a couple of websites which um which did help and there's there's a Russian one I use as well. But no, God, it is it is really hard. Um, and also, I mean, it's part of it is just um the nature of North Korea. Like it's so secretive. It's not for us. Like they they there's no reason why some Irish guy in London would need to know the league table from the North Korean Premier Division. You know. So I think they don't really bother with it. And it was, it was quite funny. I emailed them um, as part of the research for the article. I was, I was obviously trying to get in touch with people. And I was kind of um, emailing even FIFA and the AFC, which is like the Asian Football Federation, to get their um, some statements and views on stuff. And they were like, oh, no, you know, you got to go through the, the, the country for this. you got to go through the North Korean FA. And they sent me a link to the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the North Korean FA's um, sort of page on, on FIFA. And the the contact the contact information there was nothing except for a hotmail account. So I emailed off this uh, DPRK football at hotmail.com and it bounced back pretty much immediately. So even even getting in touch with them is is a uh, is obviously pretty tricky. And yeah, but part of it as well. I mean, it's we might chat about it more in a little bit. But uh, COVID has really really messed with things over there, and it's almost to the point where since this article was published, there's there's been not a huge amount of. Um, football ever they played in North Korea they had a really really strict lockdown um and the few things that that I could look up while I was researching it have, have since all been frozen like that it, it's getting even harder so I'm glad I wrote it when I did rather than uh rather than this year we've covered kind of football in communist countries like uh we'd Ryan Kilban on about football in East Germany and we had a piece on Cuba as well and how professional football was banned in Cuba and people would defect on international duty. Is there any sense that uh, football was used as a propaganda tool or was it kind of bred in circuses to kind of entertain the masses? Uh, is there any sense of kind of attendances at games? Is there professional football in North Korea? So the weird, in terms of bread and circuses, there, there's, um, North Korea's got a thing called the mass games, which are sort of, um, um, yeah, to, to answer your question, maybe I should answer it a different way. It's it's the weird thing about domestic football in North Korea is that nobody watches it. There's there's no crowds at these games. The games aren't televised on TV. So if we're talking about say the April twenty five and and the North Korean league, it, it's just um, it might as well be happening behind closed doors. Some of the games do, do have, they do it almost to, I I think it might be just to fulfill the contractual obligations so that it can field national. Uh, national yeah. team games and that's where the propaganda is and that's where the sort of um sports washing slash kind of you know soft spreading soft power that's where that comes in the domestic league is pretty um i mentioned it in the article but one i think the most recent um league that i've got record for anyway uh, it finished four games early because april 25 had won the league there's no yeah. way that they could be caught and they just thought well let's not bother fin- finishing the league now we know who the winner is there's four games left, but uh, forget about it. We, we'll, we'll finish it. I sort of it. wish the Premier League would do that sometimes when, like, Man City <laughs> run away with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would, it would save us a lot of boring games. Um, yeah. But no, so the, the propaganda and the sort of um, the big, the the big, the big stuff is the national team games, um, and that's kind of what makes uh, what April twenty five did so impressive. Is basically they they went on a huge run in in twenty nineteen, got all the way from. Playing Hong Kong and uh, playing Hong Kong teams and uh, uh, Taiwanese teams in the group stages, all the way past the Bangladeshi team. They came across a Vietnamese team, and by that point, you're getting slightly up the world rankings. Uh, got all the way to the final, and they did it pretty much with not many people knowing about it in North Korea, uh, even in Pyongyang, where they played a lot of their games. 
Um, and if you look at some of the highlights, because a few of these games, you can see the highlights, they're run by AFC. Um, they're in these huge stadiums of like 50,000 seats. Um, and there'll maybe be a, a few hundred people scattered around. Um, it, it's like watching a game during lockdown, you know, and you, you could hear shouts and uh, some some echoes around the stadium. But for the most part, these huge cavernous bowls, um, completely empty. And that run you're talking about, first of all, you mentioned, um, is it John Anderson, a Norwegian, who ended up coaching there? Do you have any background on how the hell he ended up there? He's just, I'm intrigued by him. He's just a a journeyman manager, I think. He's since since done another two or three jobs in the the three years since, uh, which considering football was halted for a long time, is pretty impressive. But he's interesting because he uh Jordan Anderson, um yeah, this this Norwegian manager arriving in North Korea is one of the reasons that um this run even happened. Um Jordan Anderson basically was the first the first uh in uh, foreign manager to manage the North Korean national side for a, a few decades, I think. Um and he turned up and he was tasked with changing the way North Korea played, getting them to qualify for the um the, the Asian Cup and I think um, the East Asian Cup. There's a, there's a couple of our regional cups which he was asked, but the main thing was to uh, well, this is what he said afterwards was to change the way North Korea played and sort of bring them a little bit into the modern footballing world because there's a little bit of pass and run um, by all accounts. Um, and he arrived and he took one look around and he was like, "What is going on here? There's eight cups and they're played on weekends scattered throughout the area." So he basically ordered the um, the North Korean FA to give him a proper league. Uh, you know, to, home and away twice a year, um, and then you can start to build with it. And that's basically what happened. Um, he did that, and there's a knock-on effect of um, this more usual um, league system coming into play. The Asian um, Football Confederation allowed North Korean club sides to play um, in the continental uh, tournaments. Because up until that point, the AFC was was as confused as everyone else was about how this all worked, who was actually the strongest team in North Korea, who can we let play in these tournaments? When Jordan Anderson came in and got the proper league in play, AFC was like, right, that's fine. We understand what's going on now. Whoever comes first and second can play in the uh, what's called the Asian Cup, which is basically the sec- the AFC Cup, which is the, the equivalent of the you know the Europa League, say, over in Asia. Um, so yeah, Jordan Anderson, God, God knows why he turned up. God knows why he uh, why he left a few years later. But the knock-on effect is that um, April 25, we're allowed to join the Cup in 2019. Um, and went on a yeah pretty crazy run. Your article kind of follows this continental run and how they reached the final, but it was a international game between the north and the south, which kind of resulted in the final being moved. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So during the course of the the tournament, um, yeah, there was an international qualifier, and yeah, as luck would have it, north north and south Korea were were in the same group. Um, and it was the first time I think this had happened, um, maybe since '91. It was definitely a couple of decades. It was years and years since they played a competitive game together. There might have been a few little friendlies or sort of, you know, um, uh, stuff like that. But this was the first really competitive game in a long time, um, and it was in um, Pyongyang. So South Korea went over to to play in North Korea, and North Korea banned all TV. For, they they banned broadcasters. They banned any sort of media from joining the South Korean players. They banned South Korean fans. They basically locked down the stadium, put a sort of um, pretty much like a, a blackout over the game. And if you read about them, uh, you can There's no highlights. Around, there's there's actually a few highlights alive, but there's not proper coverage of the game. But the South Korean players talking about the game afterwards, it sounded horrific. It sounded like they described it as war. You know, it was, it was proper um, studs up, tackles going in. Um, really, really nasty stuff, and it ended nil-nil. But as a knock-on effect of that, and of a knock-on effect um, of North Korea banning the broadcasters and saying there's, there's, you can't film here, you can't, you can't have fans. Um, April twenty-five were banned from what what they were meant to do, which was hosting the final of this AFC Cup in Pyongyang. AFC basically said we're not doing that again. North Korea refused to allow anyone to come and film the final. You know the big, the sort of um, landmark match of this of this tournament and the AFC just lost patience and said well fine we're not going to we're not going to host it in Pyongyang we're going to host it in it ended up being in, in Kuala Lumpur which is coincidentally where um AFC headquarters are so it's handy enough for them um and that was a real shame for for April 25 because they they'd been yet to concede a goal at home in the entire tournament I think they 
by that point, if you're just counting games in Pyongyang, they were they were 13 nil up after all the games they played there. It was a real. I mean, it, you can imagine what it must be like traveling to a closed off rogue nation to play an away football game, and uh, it must be a pretty hostile hostile uh, place to go. So they would have had a real chance of winning that final. Instead, they were brought to a, a neutral stadium thousands and thousands of miles from Pyongyang where um, they lost 1-0 and it was a really sour ending to the tournament for them. The article finishes with saying this possibly was a great propaganda opportunity for North Korea to have a club side win this. But the fact that they could kind of ban media and have it move kind of fulfilled their ambition to say we don't need this, we don't need it here, we're happy in our secretive state. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about about North Korea, isn't it? It's when you think about sports washing with um, what Saudi Arabia is doing, and I guess in a way what what um, Russia did do for many years, spreading their soft power. That's not really something that North Korea does. North Korea is not trying to um, influence the rest of the world, or sp- it's it's not trying to spread the good. You know, it's not trying to hide these atrocities by showing the rest of the world how good North Korea is at football. It's a, it's a very strange situation where they at times do really seem happy to be closed off and they will do things which purposely bring more and more restrictions and sanctions on their own people and on their own regime because it, it builds up this um, this us against the world mentality, which is which is kind of the one thing which is keeping uh, the regime in place. Um, so so I do it, it, it does seem that they almost purposely uh, screwed up their chance to host the final because it fit into it slightly fit into their narrative and it meant that they didn't have to, for example, they didn't have to have these billboards with foreign companies plastered around their, their stadium and they didn't have to have uh, away fans coming over or, or anything like that. It, it just kept things simple from their point of view. Joey, you mentioned in the piece this star player that 425 has, Kim Yu Song. Is yeah. that right? Um, and it kind of, kind of relates to what you were saying there about they're quite happy the, the state is quite happy to be closed off to the rest of the world but he sounds like he could potentially play internationally mm. do you think there's any chance the north korean state would ever let that happen let one of their players play in a european league so it does it's it's a really tricky situation because some some of the uh, the players who play say for the north korean national team they do play abroad but in right. those cases it normally is um uh, it will it'll be a player who's who's ethnically um, Korean, but will have been born in Japan and probably grew up in Japan. Um, it, it's quite an interesting situation where there are there are tens and well hundreds of thousands of ethnic North Koreans in Japan who attend North Korean schools and they're loyal to the the North Korean uh, state, but they live abroad and that um, they're allowed to. Well, they they do if there's any footballers like that. So, for example, um, in 2010. Uh, Jung Tae-se, who was the, uh, if you remember during the North Korean national anthem, there was one player who was, who was sobbing uh, and it sort of went around the world, this guy who was so so moved by the uh, by hearing the North Korean national anthem being played at a World Cup finals. Um, and this is a game against Brazil that he was just, he was just openly weeping. He was a Japanese-born North Korean. Um, and there are a number of them who who do travel around and play for different, different countries, but uh, for different teams, different countries. But understandably, Local players, players who were born in Pyongyang or born in North Korea, it's it's trickier for them to them to go abroad. And it does sometimes happen, and I think even I think Kim Yu Sung actually did spend about a year um, playing in Zurich when he when he was um, a youth a youth player. But it's very very rare um, mm. for this to happen, and they seem to come back within a year or so, um, almost before they have time to get get settled and maybe get any ideas. So you do get some players who who do go abroad. Yeah. Uh, but they come back very quickly and it seems to be, um, uh, yeah, I, they don't want to risk anything, I guess. But yeah, Kim Yu-sung was, was, uh, it was, it, yeah, I feel, I feel almost, um, you feel sorry for him because he, he was, he was exceptional. If you, if you look at the highlights, he was, um, really, really talented. He reminded me of Robbie Keane, you know, I was watching <laughs> him and he scored, so he scored 24 goals in this, um, in this tournament across three years that he played in it. Uh, most games he would score, um, and yeah, he reminded me of Robbie Keane because it, the average distance from the goal was about eight yards or something. You know, he was he was just picking up balls in the box that fell to him, side footing them in. Uh, little Roy Keane, st- uh, Robbie Keane, I should say, Robbie Keane style headers, uh, just dinking them in. Um, really, really talented, clearly a good player. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, he's not he's not going to leave. He's not going to get a big big money move to to England or anything like that. I don't know. Again, I don't know if that's something that North Korea would ever want. You know, they don't they don't want their players to be stars. Uh, definitely not on on on, on foreign soil. Mm. Um, but he was yeah, really interesting player. He has played for North Korea. He's, he scored a few goals for them as well. Clearly talented, but um, but sort of trapped uh, trapped in this um, trapped in this team, which is now um, uh, which is now actually banned from playing in continental tournaments. So as a knock on of this final knock-on effect of the final North Korean teams didn't get permission to play in the the next edition of it in 2020 um and it's just come in a, a few few days ago as well that no North Korean teams have been given the the licensing to play in it again so it's kind of got back to how it was a few years ago where North Korean teams played in North Korea got up to whatever they did behind closed doors um and didn't really get to show what they can do on a on a bigger stage it seems such a shame because obviously on that run there were able to display they had quality that there's quality in in the country they were able to go all the way to a continental final and you know football has the ability to give us a glimpse inside behind these closed doors and we've seen things before like was it iran and iraq standing behind the flags and north korea and south korea i think have possibly done it at olympics that kind of thing it does it does seem like it could be a vehicle for good, which is what all these kind of FIFA endorsed tournaments are supposed to um, to talk about. And here we are kind of not really through their fault, being banned from competition. Yeah, it's tr- it's tricky, isn't it? I was thinking about this before we um, before we spoke today. And I was, I was kind of thinking, like, is this is this sports washing? Um, is, is me reading about, you know, watching these highlights of Kim Yu-sung and thinking like, oh, it's a, it's a shame for the guy. Shame for all the players they can't do it on a bigger stage or maybe get moves to. Is that not sports washing? You know, it's softening the image of, um, you know, 425 is is the official side of the, the North Korean army. You know, everyone, yeah. all these players are, I mean, they're not they're not um, doing soldier things, but they're technically all officers in the in the North Korean army. You know, they, they get assigned it and it's, it's a bit more honorable or symbolic than, than literal. But, you know, maybe this is this is sort of what it is. This is how it happens sometimes is... Um, watching highlights on YouTube and thinking like, ah, they're not that, they're not that bad, you know? Whereas, whereas really this is a representative of, of one of the most despotic regimes on earth. And, um, and if they don't get to play in a couple of football tournaments in a row, well, then maybe that's, maybe that's just what you get for, uh, for having gulags in your country, you know? Just a general question on uh, kind of sport in North Korea. Um, and maybe you can be specific about football. But one mm-hmm. of the first things I ever learned about North Korea and I don't know whether it's true or not, but Kim Jong-un is famous for having played a round of golf and get um, and achieving 11 holes in one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's like officially recorded. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, is, did you come across anything like that? Any kind of stories where you think that can't be true or they've faked that? I think I think there's a story there's a story about Kim Jong Un in, in pretty much every sport. I think I think he's um, he's probably scored a hat trick for the national team as well. Um, <laughs> he's he's done a lot. I've I've not seen anything specific to um the thing the thing with North Korea is it's such a chaotic and sensational country in in terms of the news that comes out of it. And a lot of the time, like I like I was talking about when I worked at the uh, the tabloid in in, uh, in London, there's no way to stand things up. And there's no way, even if you wanted to, to stand things up. Like I was saying, I was trying to get, you know, I have tried to get in touch with North Korea, the Football Association, and uh, say the UK Embassy and, and loads of things. Nobody gets in touch with you, and nobody. So it, when there's a vacuum, it gets filled by like the craziest stuff. It, get, it gets filled by these crazy stories. So it's hard to know, even if I don't know, I don't, I'm, I don't know if Kim Jong Un. I mean, uh, to clarify, he didn't get eleven holes. He didn't get eleven <laughs> holes at once. But I don't know if that's a real story that they, that the North Korean government has, has spread in North Korea. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's something that uh, apocryphal thing that came over here and it sort of spread around and now people talk about it. I don't know yeah. if um, because it you know you, you do see it though in in, a, in countries a little closer to us. Like we've seen uh, Vladimir Putin playing those games of ice hockey. Or I, I don't know if you've ever seen those highlights, but you know playing for some uh, professional team in in Russia and coincidentally being allowed to score a few goals and uh, and even even this week Donald Trump put out a, uh, a statement saying that he'd scored a hole in one. I don't know if you saw that. It's really strange. Yeah. He, he, obviously, he's banned from Twitter and he's banned from all these things now. But Donald Trump, yeah, put out a had a little uh, 
news alert about how he hit a hole in one playing with Ernie Els last week. Really strange. So if this is happening in America and Russia, I'm yeah. sure there's a, there's an angle of it happening in North Korea as well. But um, but to be fair, North, uh, to be fair, Kim Jong Un's favorite sport is basketball. Um, so I'm sure he does play golf, but he's he's really really big into basketball. Um, and he's actually had Dennis Rodman, the old NBA NBA star. Yeah, yeah I remember. <laughs> Dennis Rodman's gone over a number of times, and they're they're really good friends apparently. Uh, so maybe maybe so Kim Jong Un's a bit more talented on the uh, on the basketball court than the on the uh, golf course. Yeah, but if he did play football, would you dare do a Ben Thatcher or Roy Keane on? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd just let him run past me. You know, I think he's a yeah. I'd leave him to it. I mean, the obvious story that crops up, and I hate saying you know North and South no more than Ireland or England are are similar or the same country. But the obvious one we talked about with the star Kim Kim Yu Song. Would his exploits with the army team get him a move out of North Korea? And then there was the famous Kyung Min Son from Spurs who needed to win the tournament with South Korea to stay out of going to, to, to the army. So is there a similar compulsory military service that you could come across in North Korea? Do they kind of recruit the best players to this club or is it drawn from the ranks of the army? No, I think I, to be fair, I think it's drawn from um, yeah, the, the society, just the, the wider society. I think it's linked to the army in the way that you know, in the way that some of the old uh, you know, Russian clubs in Europe were originally representative of, of uh, you know the Soviet army or the Soviet military and stuff like that. But no, these players would um, would be just talented footballers who live in Pyongyang who play for this team, technically become officers in the army. Um, but no, it'd be to do with um, it, yeah, just be whoever's 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 pretty good in the in the area. I think it's a fascinating discussion, Joe, and we've tried to cover it. And I suppose from the remove of history, we're able to talk about places like Cuba and East Germany. But in terms of North Korea, I mean, it's ongoing, and you've tried to garner information, and you've explained the difficulties of that. But somehow you've done so. Somehow you were, were able to um, mine football stories from these places that uh, um, seem so remote and so secretive. What was the biggest challenge? Was, was it verifying stories? Or, or uh, you said in the piece, like, sometimes league tables don't come out till a week later. And you, you call it diplomacy with studs in the story. You to t- almost take everything with a grain of salt. or or And what is your overriding feeling of... You said kind of COVID has robbed robbed the country of football, the AFC abandoned from continental competition. What's your overriding feeling of the state of the sport and the role it can play in that country? Mm. The the trickiest thing by far is, is understanding why things are happening. It's, it's similar to what we said earlier. Was it good that the tournament was moved from North Korea? Was this something that they wanted all along? Or was it something which would have which actually prevented a major uh, PR coup, or propaganda, I should say, rather than PR. But April 25 could have won uh, a continental trophy in Pyongyang. That, would have been, that could have been a major, major um, opportunity for North Korea to show, show what they want to do, which is show how strong they are, show how their, their people are fit and healthy and talented and, uh, and yeah. you know, wor- world-beating. So, you know, they, they avoided having to show sponsorship banners in a, in a in the stadiums in Pyongyang and may, maybe they avoided a uh, heavy defeat in Pyongyang but they also missed out on a, on a massive opportunity um, and in terms of the, the overall health of the sport in North Korea it's it's really really bleak now I think if you froze if you uh, if you froze everything um, let's say when April 25 or when 425 were at the semi-final stage uh, so before that South Korea friendly and before they lost before April 25 lost in the final I think you'd be feeling pretty confident about North Korean North Korean football after the uh, the changes brought forward by by Jorn Anderson uh, and the success of the success of four twenty five in that tournament. But since then, things have really just really gone badly. Obviously, they lost that final, which is which is almost incidental because the, the main takeaway from that tournament is that they've they've essentially been blacklisted in the year since they're not able to take part. Um, and the national team is also uh, in real trouble. They were. Um, so the the, the friend, uh, not the friendly, the, the game against South Korea was part of the qualification for for this coming World Cup, the twenty twenty two qualification campaign. Since then, they've played a few games, uh, but they they eventually pulled out of the tournament altogether, pulled out of qualifying, and pulled out of uh, even trying to fulfill games. They said because of COVID. Um, but again, it's it's really hard to know exactly exactly why why they do anything. Um, 
and a knock-on effect of this means they're obviously not going to have a chance to uh, get to the 2022 World Cup. Uh, but more than that, this was the qualification in Asia is often merged. So this also was acting as um, uh, part of the qualification for the 2023 Asian Cup, which they're now not going to be a part of. And as a knock-on effect of withdrawing, um, sort of against the wishes of the AFC, they could be banned from the 2026 qualifying, which again is a knock-on, would also be for the Asian qualifying. And you're now looking at a point where uh, North Korea might not play a, a competitive game until the qualification for 2030 World Cup. Um, so you've got a whole host of talented players like Kim Yu-sung who, you know, their careers will be over now. That's it. And, the, you know, we're talking eight years in the future, really, before they have a chance to play in a, a major tournament again. And that's a, lot, it's a long time in football. It's a long time to let a country stagnate and to to um, not have these players coming through. So um, mm. it sometimes seems really trivial to talk about football when you're discussing North Korea. Um, but if we are talking about it, we're a football podcast and we're interested in football. Yeah, it's, it's in a really, really dark place at the moment. So they're they're blacklisted domestically and uh, internationally. They're not they're not they're not going to play a, a big game for many years now. Would you see any parallels with obviously Russia and what's happening in in Ukraine and similar kind of communist background and the state above all else? But Russia is obsessed with its kind of outward image, and is now bearing the brunt of its sporting sanctions kind of cheekily bidding for the Euros, which is never going to happen. But do you draw any parallels or, or an, any opinion on kind of the differing approaches? Like Russian teams will now suffer because of the actions of, the outward actions of one man. And similarly, North Korea, but North Korea seem content for that to happen. I think I think that's the main parallel is that um, obviously both both states use sports as a way to if they can show how, how strong they are and to, to get the name out there and, and that sort of thing. But it's the way that the uh, the people in charge exploit the, the teams and, and the players for their own good. So if you remember the, the 2018 World Cup was obviously um, was in Russia and Russia did pretty well in that tournament. There was a load of, lo- so much funding was going into the national team and, and player development in the years leading up to that World Cup so that they would, you know, so they'd have a strong team and good players and um there was a lot of investment in the Russian Premier League and the clubs in those leagues. And it was Russia, Russia was a pretty, uh, it was a hot bed of football for a little while. You know, there's was, there was good teams and players there. As soon as the World Cup was held there and Putin didn't need that sort of um, showcase final to be held there, the, the funding's dried up. Domestically, Russia, there's not much money left in anymore. The national team has plummeted in the year since really. That it's, it's, I don't think it's qualified. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's, that's the main parallel with with North Korea is how if they if, uh, when they're useful and when it's useful to have a strong football team and a, a team traveling around the world uh, and strong domestic teams, you know, dictators will will exploit that and, and put money into it. And when it, when they're when they're no use anymore, they'll be tossed aside. So that's where we are with with both uh, countries at the moment. It feels like. Joey, it was a fascinating discussion, not least how you came to delve into that area. And then as we try to take a football angle and you've brought an, an amazing story out of it. So a really enjoyable chat. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. No, thanks, James. And thanks, Taylor. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Joey. I'd, yeah, I'd uh, advise anyone to go and read the piece. It's a really great piece. And that's it for the latest episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and toggle back for previous shows. You can order issue seven of the magazine online on our website and look out for more information on issue eight or get in touch via our social media channels. Join us next time on the Pokemon Gold podcast.